Hello, welcome to Talking Human Rights. I'm Heather Robertson Gaston. Today we are doing a special episode for Black History Month, talking about how really, to a very large extent, it is people of African descent who we have to thank for human freedom and ideas of human rights. And I don't think I would have ever conceived of doing an episode like this if I didn't know our guest, Christina Proenza Coles, who has written a book due out on March 15th called American Founders, How People of African Descent Established Freedom in the New World. So welcome, Christina. I can't wait to talk about this book and congratulations on all the early praise that I'm reading from, let's see, Publishers Weekly and uh, Kirkus Reviews. It seems from where I'm sitting that people are shouting from the rafters and saying, we need this book. And I, I definitely agree. So thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. So let's lay out for our listeners the central thesis of this book. Who are the American founders? And what is the big correction you're making here to the way American history is told? So in American popular history, we tend to suggest that Black people stepped onto the stage of history as plantation slaves in the 19th century, and that they came into the political arena during the civil rights movement in the 1950s. But if you study the history of the Americas, you will see that Africans began arriving in the Americas with Columbus, and they're part of all of the 16th century exploratory and military missions to settle the New World, which means that they preceded the English by over a century. Secondly, before 1820, four times as many Africans came to the Americas as Europeans, and they started to advocate for rights starting not in the 1950s, but in the 1500s. So the American founders are these countless black men and women who were central to the settlement of the Americas and the establishment of all the nations in the new world. And they were continually trying to dismantle slavery. And in effect, they were promulgating the rise of freedom in the Americas. And when was the moment that you realized you had a book on your hands? So this project came into focus when I was an assistant professor of the African diaspora and the Atlantic world at Virginia State University from 2004 to 2011. I taught a bunch of core courses there repeatedly. I taught world history, U.S. history, Latin American history, Atlantic world history. And when I would research for these classes, I kept coming across incredible stories of black men and women who did really interesting things. They fought in wars, they they established newspapers, they invented technologies, con- constantly pushing for rights, their own rights and the rights of others. And cumulatively, these thousands of individuals fundamentally changed the way I understood the rise of freedom and democracy in the Americas. And just to give you one example, we at Virginia State, we were the first university to host a conference on African Americans and the American Civil War. And As a part of that project, I started to see how almost everything about the American Civil War was pushed forward by people of color. I mean, if you if you look, for example, at the Declaration of Secession from South Carolina, they're essentially complaining that the federal government and northerners were failing to return individuals who had been liberating themselves from the South. So that is pushing the politics and many, many other black political movements are kind of pushing the politics that are going to erupt in the Civil War. But as soon as the shots are fired at Fort Sumter, you have lots of examples of free black men who've already served in military missions in the West, for example, who are volunteering to raise black troops. And Lincoln says, no, 
because the idea of arming black men is a very, very much associated with rights and rights of citizenship. And it was too hot of an issue. He was concerned with preserving the union and not with uh, black citizenship or abolition at this point. However, at this point also, you have hundreds of thousands of enslaved African-Americans take matters into their own hands and flee plantations and flood Union lines offering their services to federal troops. And some generals take them and they called them contraband and permitted them to to participate. And others said no. And Lincoln wasn't really even sure what to do. And eventually, because of this huge tide of African-American individuals pushing for this opportunity to fight for their own freedom and for the freedom of others, Lincoln eventually creates the Emancipation Proclamation in many ways as a military measure to officially enlist the hundreds of thousands of black men who are already in service. So if you read the Emancipation Proclamation closely, it is basically advocating the enlistment of these black soldiers who Lincoln acknowledged were crucial to to the winning of the war. Um, And black women also played many important roles in this. Everybody knows about Harriet Tubman and her work in the Underground Railroad. It's less known that she's the first American woman ever to lead a military raid, which she did. And it was one that liberated 800 individuals, which she led. She led black troops, um, black soldiers to do so. Apparently, it was widely reported in the press. Other military personnel tried to copy her tactics. She was buried with full military honors. Mary Bowser, she was a former slave from Richmond who elected to pose as a slave in the capital of the Confederacy. She worked in the household of Jefferson Davis. She feigned a dimwit, but she was constantly recording uh, information, military information, which she passed on to the white baker who would visit the house regularly. And it was, it's, was acknowledged by Union generals that this spying was essential to their military movements. Um, and this, this woman, Mary Bowser, she was inducted into the U.S. Military Hall of Fame in 1995. This is to say that the Emancipation Proclamation wasn't something that Lincoln gifted to black people. This was something that was pushed forward at every point uh, by people of African descent. And you can sort of tell this story over and over again, I realized, with the American Revolution, with the independence wars in Latin America, with independence movements in the Caribbean. So this is kind of the model that had me see these connections throughout the history, not just of the United States, but throughout the Americas. So I I think you were probably sensitized to this history at a younger age than I was, but I, I feel like I did not learn any of these things when I was younger. I, I did, of course, learn about the Underground Railroad, and but I didn't know about, her, her name is Mary Bowser. Mm-hmm. I didn't know about her. I don't think I ever once heard that name. And um, I don't think I knew this part of the history of Harriet Tubman either. Is it just because I wasn't paying attention or do you think that this wasn't taught? Well, I think for a long time, we've kind of been filtering history through a little straw of, of telling the same stories over and over again. But here's the extraordinary thing when I talk about this research and people say, wow, you must have spent all this time in the archives. And I, I spent some time in archives in Cuba and Virginia, but really, What's remarkable is that the history of these men and women has been here all along, kind of right under our noses. And some of it, I will say, I I use a lot of secondary sources. And there's an amazing tradition that's sort of a recent turn in historiography called Atlantic World History that I referred to earlier. And that's a, a movement in history that tries to look at the connections between 
the Americas as a whole, Europe and Africa, as they try to consider the rise of the new world. And one great example of that is this book called The Common Wind by Julia Scott that really is sort of the quintessential way of looking at new world history in a way that connects all these threads. So that's really helpful. But I also want to say that there's a really long tradition of scholarship that has been documenting what these men and women did for centuries. And so, for example, the American Revolution, which was a watershed event in which black Americans played absolutely seminal roles, their roles were first recorded by a black Bostonian named William Nell, who was writing the 1850s. He was followed by many black scholars, men and women in the 19th century, and then scholars of every background in the 20th century have contributed to this body of knowledge of the remarkable roles that people of color play in the American Revolution. But my point is that this history has always been here. We just need to kind of turn the lights up on it. And what, what I've tried to do in American Founders is to bring all of these threads together. But I am absolutely beholden to the many hundreds of scholars who have been doing this work for centuries. Something that you write in the book is that until about 200 years ago, most people were unfree. It was not slavery that was extraordinary, but, quote, freedom that was extraordinary. I really want to hear you talk more about why it's so significant that we understand this. Well, this is something that was said by the great historian of, quote unquote, the problem of slavery, uh, David Bryant Davis. He said that. And what he meant was that up until about 200 years or so, most people around the world were were unfree in some way. They were someone's subject, or they were a serf, or they were an apprentice or a servant. Hierarchy for most of human history was seen as the natural order of things. For a very brief time in the ancient period, Greeks have in, may have invented the concept of democracy, and the, the Romans had a, a republic, but significant parts of their population was enslaved. So And just as an aside, slavery had nothing to do with race at this point. It was seen as perfectly normal condition for foreigners and prisoners of war. So it's generally speaking throughout most human history, even in those times of those of those special ancient republics, hierarchy was seen as natural. It was seen as God given and religious and political authorities relied on that idea. And so that's why the age of revolution of the American, French, Haitian revolutions is such a huge shift um, in this Enlightenment thinking, this idea that the king shouldn't rule by divine right, that the middle class, which was emerging because of the economics of Atlantic slavery, the idea that middle class people shouldn't miss out on power just because they weren't born into noble families. This idea of individual rights was a a brand new idea in the 18th century. So let's talk more about rights. Let's talk about Isabel de Olvera, a Spaniard who participated in the expedition to the Americas in 1600, and as you write, took great pains to define and protect her rights, employing a language that, as you say, we usually associate with the Enlightenment. Could you read that passage from your book? Yes, so I'm making the point here that uh, people of African descent were settling towns in what was the present-day United States well before the English settled Jamestown. And here's an example uh, where Isabel de Olvera, she's setting out in an expedition from Mexico to New Mexico in 1600. And she left behind an affidavit that states, she says, As I am going on the expedition to New Mexico and have some reason to believe that I may be annoyed by some individual since I am a mulatto, and as it is proper to protect my rights in such an eventuality by an affidavit showing that I am a free woman, unmarried, and the legitimate daughter of Hernando, a Negro, and an Indian named Magdalena, I therefore request your grace to accept this affidavit, which shows that I am free and not bound by marriage or slavery. 
I request that a properly certified and signed copy be given to me in order to protect my rights and that it carry full legal authority. I demand justice. There's a lot of things to say about this passage. First of all, I also want to be clear that this is typical of affidavits. They often close with, I demand justice. So I should be straightforward about that. But this language of rights, and as I say in the book, it's, which is preceding the Enlightenment um, by some time here in 1600, it's interesting that she needs to try to make assertions protecting these rights. But she's an example of many people of color who made affidavits, went in courts, and tried to argue for their natural rights. Rights in the Spanish colonies were were really different as compared to what happens in the English colonies. So some people think that one of the reasons why slavery and rights were different in Latin America is because the Latins were Catholic and slaves were considered part of the Catholic Brotherhood and therefore they had certain rights to marriage, to not separating prepubescent children from their families. And the Spanish also brought with them to the New World slave laws that originated in, in Rome that came through the Justinian Code. And they also created customs and legal procedures on the ground here in the New World that permitted slaves to take abusive masters in front of authorities. They had legislation that encouraged slave masters who impregnated slaves to care for the women, free the women, and to free their children. And they even permitted enslaved people to set their own purchase price so that they could work toward paying it off. Even if these things didn't always happen in practice, and I'm not trying to say that slavery was delightful in Latin America because it was brutal and individual slave owners could dismiss these rights and these and these codes at any time. It speaks to how Spanish authorities thought about the rights of enslaved people. And also, I want to mention that Catholicism, which was in itself a political force in the Spanish state, is all about hierarchy. And Spanish social structure was, was corporate. So everyone had a place, so to speak. So what I mean to say by that is that in places where class matter, where hierarchy is recognized, color doesn't have to do so much work ideologically. So you spoke about how rights played out in the Latin American colonies. How did they play out differently in the British colonies? Well, unlike the Spanish colonies, which brought with them these ancient slave codes and had oversight from from the church and the crown, the British colonists in Virginia invented slave codes out of whole cloth. They had no oversight from the church or crown, and and they could create codes that really just protected their own own interests. So they, you can see these codes developing laws, developing piecemeal throughout the 1600s. And the slave owners and authorities are really wrestling with how to, how to control and keep apart European indentured servants who wildly outnumbered Africans at first in the British mainland colonies, certainly in, in Maryland and Virginia. And they're trying to keep them separate from enslaved Africans who were sometimes considered indentured servants in the earliest times who were working together. And, and, these, and so these African and European servants were working together. They were having kids together. So the most gigantic difference between Spanish America and English America, and in, and in fact, all of Latin America and the Caribbean, including the British Caribbean, is that everywhere outside of the English colonies that became the United States, mixed race kids tended to be raised as free people and who had rights, as opposed to the United States, who kept all, almost all of these mixed race kids in slavery. There's, I've come across a few examples where people treat them as legitimate heirs or, or per- permit them to sort of run away, if you will. But 
it's 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 a really unique thing to the United States. And the other unique thing that you find in the United States is that rights are denied to people of African descent who are enslaved, which is typical of any slave regime. But this such a stark denial of rights that we see gradually, especially in the 1700s and 1800s, is, is really quite unique. But also the denial of rights to free people of color. Um, that's very unique to this slave regime because typically once people are free, they're free. And even in, in Latin American colonies and, and British Caribbean colonies, you can see people of color having property rights and, and being able to join, join professional classes. So this is why in the United States in particular, securing rights is a continual endeavor for African-Americans, both enslaved people and as well as free people of color. Your book is absolutely filled with these stories of people of African descent demanding that their humanity be recognized and that their rights be recognized. And a lot of these cases make it into court. Um, like, can you can you tell us about the case of Anthony Johnson and John Kasor? Anthony Johnson was one of the very first Africans recorded coming to Jamestown in 1621. Um, he was known as Antonio and Negro. He's able to work basically as an indentured servant and gains his freedom after a period of time. He marries an African woman who was recorded as named Mary. They were able to amass many acres of property, servants, white and black, many head rights. He was essentially a successful Afro-Virginian planter. And there's a case where one of his servants, John Kazor, essentially runs away and makes a contract with Anthony Johnson's white neighbor. And Johnson asks for his servant, John Kazor, back. They go to court and the court This is 1655, by the way. So this is before the sort of hardening of the racial laws that you're going to see in the United States and starting off in Virginia um, towards the end of the 1600s. So the court rules in the favor of Anthony Johnson and says, no, John Kazor is Anthony Johnson's servant for life and actually awards uh, Johnson his court costs. He insists that the neighbor pays for for the legal fees that Johnson has incurred. So if you think about it, that means that one of you know technically one of the first slave owners in the United States was a black man, which causes some people pause. Although I will say there is a, a long history of people of color owning enslaved people, which sometimes that was in, in order to liberate them, and sometimes to use as apprentices. Sometimes in Haiti and Louisiana, for example, you'll it, you know, you'd see free people of color who have some of the same rights and privileges of, of white planters who also employed slaves. So this is a, there's no sort of monolithic story of, of Africans in America. But in this case, also, I think it's interesting to point out that John Kazor, who would be considered one of the nation's first slaves is arguing for his freedom in court in 1655, even though it's denied to him, he's making that case. And I cite in the book many earlier cases of people in Barbados and Maryland who win their cases with that argument. I was just an indentured servant. I was free to contract. I'm free to make another contract. And um, in the previous cases, the courts had ruled, yes, you are, you are, we will, you are considered free. There's also this great story of James Somerset that's in your book. Um, And I should say, something that's great about this book is that um, it has timelines, which I just find so helpful. I love timelines. And there it is. In 1772, Somerset's legal victory in England challenging the legitimacy of slavery. James Somerset is really a remarkable case. And you can argue in some ways kind of set the American Revolution in in motion. James Somerset was born in, in, in Africa 
and he was purchased as a slave in Norfolk by a uh, an English customs agent who was living in Boston. And the, so they lived in Boston for a little while. And then eventually they, they go back to London, where James Somerset uh, takes leave of his master. He runs away. The master sets out slave catchers. Slave catchers recover James Somerset, put him on a ship bound for the Caribbean. And James Somerset ends up getting a writ of habeas corpus and goes in front of the Supreme Court Justice Lord Mansfield in London in 1772. And this had happened many times of slaves running away in France and in England. And usually what happened was that the judge would say, well, you're free until you're, you know, if your master is in absentia, you're free until they return from the Caribbean, or they would encourage the, the owner to liberate that person. And so they wouldn't have to rule on the legality of slavery in general. But in this case, that did not come to pass. And so Mansfield was forced to rule on the legality of slavery in England. And what he determined was that there was no positive law, in fact, to support slavery. And so therefore, slavery was not legal. So James Somerset goes free. This case goes around the Atlantic world, as you can imagine, and is talked about in every paper in in the British colonies in the United States, and is quite upsetting, as you can imagine, to uh, planters who are still British subjects, subject to British authority, wondering about what this means for their future and their livelihoods that are based on slavery. Meanwhile, there are slaves learning about this in the South, and we have at least uh, two uh, runaway slave notices that I can point to where the the complaining slave master says, you know, Amy and Bacchus have run away because they're, they're under this notion that they'll be free in Great Britain, a, a notion too prevalent now among people of African descent. That's not the word, the term he uses, but, and also there's another, there's another uh, slave ad that, runaway slave ad that says that uh, for another person named Bacchus, a different person who says he's aware of the Somerset case. So it stimulated a movement for freedom in the South, but in the North, you also get three um, petitions signed by uh, African-American slaves because in, in the North, because there was, of course, slavery in the North as well, who are submitting these these petitions to the legislature in Massachusetts, demanding their natural right to freedom and, and citing, citing the Somerset case. So some people have argued that it was maybe... It may be more than their concern for uh, taxation without representation that there were that there was a class of uh, British colonials here and planters who were concerned about their livelihood based on slavery that motivated them to break with the with the British crown. Um, so in that sense, you can see the American Revolution is being pushed forward by this James Somerset case. But I also just want to mention that thousands of African Americans fought as patriots in the American Revolution, but many thousands more, tens of thousands. I mean, the the, the estimates range from. 20,000 to 100,000 enslaved people liberated themselves during the American Revolution, causing uh, historian Gary Nash to call this the largest slave revolt in American history, as they chose to side with the British and against American slavery, and uh, many of whom emigrated um, throughout Canada and, and the Bahamas and, and, and London and, and eventually to, to colonies in West Africa. There's Elizabeth Freeman, who she lived also in Massachusetts, and she, her husband had died. Um, she was enslaved, and her husband had, had died in service in the American Revolution as an American uh, revolutionary patriot soldier. And she um, was also a midwife, and she, in 1781, tested out the new Massachusetts Constitution, arguing for her freedom, and won. And she, essentially, her case becomes a precedent that it causes the end of slavery in, in Massachusetts. And then there's George Latimer, who you also write about. Um, I wonder if you could talk about him a little bit in his case. He was uh, enslaved in Virginia. He was he was quite fair-skinned because he was the 
son of his owner's brother. He ran away with his wife, his common-law wife, who was pregnant, and posed as her owner as they escaped from, from Virginia to Boston. And then they were recognized by an agent of their slave owner from Virginia, which started this kind of, which is quite common with fugitive slaves. It started this whole legal process with trying to return the Latimers to Virginia. But George Latimer took advantage of, capitalized on on, on, on political networks that were, that were anti-slavery in Boston and ended up getting a petition with tens of thousands of signatures that ended up in what Massachusetts called the Latimer Law, which protected the rights of fugitive slaves, which, which were really at issue as I said, this is sort of the thing that, that ignites the uh, South Carolina secession, this issue of people seeking their own freedom in the North and Northern courts trying to deliberate of how, how and if they should return these individuals. And what's so fascinating about this story, about the Latimers, one of the many fascinating things about the story about the Latimers is that after freeing themselves, they go on to have a son who becomes an inventor, who you then, of course, cover in the next chapter. He becomes a very talented um, electrical engineer who was tapped by Thomas Edison to become one of the Edison pioneers and worked with Edison on the development of light bulb technology, and he developed incandescent filament. So it's another example of how not only are, are people of African descent pushing forward for rights and freedom, but also they're instrumental in the technological uh, advances that shaped American history. Yeah. And I love that you really, you talk about the sun and you do this a lot in the book. You really talk about the social networks and how the people that are in this book are often related in some way, not, not necessarily related by blood, but related socially. And it, I kind of want you to do like a family tree or a social tree that shows how the stories in this book, so many of the stories in this book are connected. And it shows that a person attaining, you know, any any additional level of freedom and access and privilege, um, really, uh, it creates this huge effect and un- unleashes so much human potential, not just for them, but for all of the people around them. Um, I want to remind listeners that you are listening to Talking Human Rights. Our guest today is Christina Proenza Coles, author of American Founders, How People of African Descent Established Freedom in the New World, out in March from New South Books. You can pre-order it now. And I want to recommend something else, which is following Christina and the book on Instagram. The handle is at Proenza Coles. So that's P-R-O-E-N-Z-A-C-O-L-E-S. And when I read this feed, because I I do follow Christina on Instagram, and when I read this feed, I feel like it's like something's happening to my brain. There's something really essential being introduced to my understanding of history and the world I live in. I see all of these really highly relevant stories of people I have somehow never heard of. And I just think like, oh my gosh, what what were my educators doing when I was a child? How many times as a child did I have to hear the story of George Washington and the cherry tree? And how many times did my eyes roll back in my head in boredom when I could have been hearing the story that I learned on Christina's Instagram of um, William Lee and Harry Washington, Ona Judge and Hercules, who I wonder if you can talk about them a little bit. So as most people know, many of our our founding father presidents owned slaves. In fact, a quarter of U.S. presidents were slave owners, which is not surprising. Slavery was an enormous part of the founding of, of our country. George Washington 
in his household, he, there's some stories, some interesting stories of, of enslaved people who are part of Washington's household. So one of them is, is William Lee. And he's actually, if you go to the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City, you can see a portrait of Washington on horseback and, and William Lee standing next to him. And William Lee was was a valet and basically a kind of a, a, a personal assistant to Washington throughout the American Revolution. He was an excellent equestrian horseman and um, a, a, a very loyal companion to Washington. And uh, eventually, uh, in Washington's will, he, he manumitted William Lee, he gave him his freedom and, and actually a, a small um, inheritance, which kind of shows you that kind of relationship that um, this is an avenue that some people, uh, enslaved people, were did re- receive bequests um, and freedom. Uh, certainly, you know, perhaps at the death of of their owner, or or in some cases, um, b- before that. Um, another one of, of Washington's members of his of his enslaved household was was went by the, Harry Washington. He was born in West Africa, and he was among the many, as I mentioned before, that there was tens of thousands of, of black loyalists. They were called of of people who were enslaved in the South who chose to join up with the British um, in pursuit of, of freedom. I think people know about Dunbar's proclamation that officially offered liberty in exchange for any slaves or servants who would join the British. It, to me, it reminds me a little bit of the, the, the Emancipation Proclamation that I mentioned with Abraham Lincoln, that this was <laughs> the proclamation was made after many enslaved people had liberated themselves from plantations and already tried to join up with the, with the armies. So Harry Washington became quite famous as uh, a leader uh, among the British troops, and he eventually leaves uh, to Nova Scotia, which became sort of a, a hub for for Black loyalists, both from the American Revolution and from the War of 1812, as well as actually some Jamaican Maroons who were sent there after the Second Maroon War, which is a whole other story of of trying to establish rights that's really interesting. And actually, a lot of, of, of these folks living in Nova Scotia end up going back to West Africa, and in the case of Harry Washington, back to where he was born. Um, as part of the the colony of, of Sierra Leone. Okay, and and the story of Ona Judge, just getting a snippet of her story, this enslaved woman who escaped from the household of the President of the United States. If you want to check out, um, there's a great book called Never Caught by Erica Armstrong Dunbar that, that goes into depth of this story. But Ona Judge was um, a, an enslaved member of the Washington household who took her leave. At this point, the capital was not yet D.C. and the Washingtons were living in Philadelphia. And the piecemeal abolition laws in these various northern states, Ona Judge knew that she was about to be returned to the Mount Vernon estate. So she decided to liberate herself by walking out of the presidential mansion in Philadelphia uh, while, while the Washingtons ate dinner. And she um, found freedom in New Hampshire. And while Washington, the Washingtons sought her vigorously, she was protected by both white and black neighbors um, and was able to, to maintain her freedom. But the, I think the stories are very interesting because they, they point to three sort of mechanisms, if you will, that were very commonly used throughout all of the Americas, whether it was through service to the colonial power and loyalty, military service in particular became a route to freedom and, and rights, and also sheer armed rebellion or joining a, a, a competing colonial power either through their as in their army or as a as a, a pirate proxy also was very common um, and, and emigrating that was another um, or, or through through uh, what we call maroon communities which were when enslaved people just up and left and created independent societies usually in 
in geographical reaches that were hard to get to. Um, and this was really common in, in Jamaica and Cuba and Colombia and Panama and Venezuela and Guyana. Really, anywhere there was slavery, you can find maroon communities. And also here in the United States, when I was in graduate school, they used to kind of emphasize that we didn't have that many maroon communities, but historians and scholars have turned up tons of documentation of maroon communities that were throughout the South, whether here in the Dismal Swamp, um, just south of us in Virginia, all over, Louisiana, Georgia. But the hugest thing is the the entire, what we think of as the state of Florida now, was, an, was a gigantic maroon community filled, filled with, with armed black people who had liberated themselves from slavery in the Carolinas and later Georgia, and either joined with the Spanish or established independent communities or joined with Seminole Fugitive Creek communities um, and, and formed what they call Black Seminole communities. As a matter of fact, after George Washington was elected president, one of the first treaties he ever made in 1790 was the Treaty of New York, which ostensibly required Native people to return fugitive slaves in Florida, which I, I don't think it really reduced the extent of these Black communities, which continued to grow throughout the 1800s. But it speaks to what a concern it was at, at the founding of our nation. And it continued to be. I mean, the Seminole Wars with Andrew Jackson, essentially the U.S. loses the Second Seminole War because they cannot defeat the Black Seminole troops that are supported by newly fugitive slaves from Georgia. They lose the war, they make a treaty and essentially grant freedom to these communities. They move them out west. That's another interesting story because the descendants of many of these Black Seminoles who from Florida who go west end up becoming what they call Black Seminole Scouts or Buffalo Soldiers and end up fighting. Um, they're part of, quote unquote, how the West was won, if you will, and they also fight in World War One. So they become an important part of nation building in, in that part of our story. So speaking of these stories of self-liberation and hearing all these stories about self-liberation, I was reading the book and I found myself welling up just with rage reading the advertisement run by Thomas Jefferson about his runaway slave, Sandy. And um, to think that this is the person, this is a person credited as an American founder, primary drafter of the Declaration of Independence. In reality, he was enslaving his own family members. And um, and he wrote, uh, well, what did he write? Can you read that? Yes, part of it, at least. It's, it's, it's um, an ad from the Virginia Gazette signed Thomas Jefferson. And it, it starts off First of all, with a little this, you guys can't see this, but this is a really annoying little um, image they use for the runaway slave ads. That's it's like the it's like the emoticon, if you will, of the 18th century. Of yeah. by the way, so the Cornell is an amazing database that's collecting all of these runaway slave ads, or as many as they can get their hands on, and and they're they're legion, and so they really speak to a, this important method of flight as a way to to seek freedom and to establish one's rights. It was it was ubiquitous throughout all, all of the Americas. But so in this case, Jefferson writes, um, run away from the subscriber in Albemarle, a mulatto slave called Sandy, about 35 years of age. His stature is rather low, um, inclining to corpulence. His complexion is, is light. He's a shoemaker by trade. I won't go on on to details, but so these this is very typical of these ads that would describe someone's complexion, what they were wearing, if they had any particular markings, and what their trade was, and what they were up to, especially if they're trying to get on a boat to Great Britain, as I mentioned before. Um, but what strikes me about this, um, yes, um, it's there's a huge 
you know, disconnect between writing the Declaration of Independence and then writing notes on Virginia a few years later where he's denigrating people of African descent, saying that they're inherently inferior when he's also, you know, about to become the father of six African descended children whom he'll keep in bondage. Um, I mean, I believe that one of one of his uh, daughters was was encouraged to to run away, and she settled in in D.C. and and passed and married a white person and raised a white family. and And two of his sons, I believe, were apprenticed to a I want to say Mason who helped to build the University of Virginia, and so they enjoyed um, some rights. But there's you know there's also relatives. I mean, there's Sally Hemings' mother was had also. Um, was sort of the matriarch of, of the family and they create um now i'm going to forget the number but it's something like you know a hundred descendants who are living in uh Mont- you know at monticello as enslaved residents that are who are essentially um kin as a matter of fact you know martha jefferson sally hemmings is her half sister so we know that martha jefferson owned her half sister there's a lot of speculation that martha washington also owned her half sister and there was a, you know, and we also know that uh, James Monroe like purchased one of these Hemings children uh, and with her children. In other words, there's a lot of European ancestry among the slaves that Americans owned. And, you know, sometimes they were kin, sometimes they, they weren't, or they were the kin of, of people who were, who were in their vicinity. But I just want to make the point that white people were sleeping with black people through varying degrees of coercion throughout American history. I was also taught in graduate school that amalgamation and that racial mixing happened a lot in Latin America and did not happen in in the United States. And I realized that what the difference was is that the United States, these children, mixed race children were kept in bondage, whereas in Latin America, those kids were freed. So people, you know, if you look at the images on, on Instagram and the, and the images in the book of, of, of individuals, I've had people say, wow, you know, a lot of these people are, are really light skinned. And that should tell you something about about how pathological the so-called color line was, how how we Americans are not just figuratively, but but we're literally the descendants of both slaves and slave owners. You know, and if you go back to the number from the beginning, if Africans outnumbered Europeans by a factor of four to one until 1820, that means that before the early 19th century, most Americans arrived in the New World as slaves. Wow. Um I thought about mentioning this in the introduction, but um, ultimately decided to save it until now. The fact that we are recording this interview in Charlottesville, Virginia, where we seem to be completely awash in revelations about just really blatant racism. First, it comes out that Governor Ralph Northam either appeared in costume in blackface or as a Klansman, or maybe neither of these things. But in any case, the image made it onto his own self-curated yearbook page from his medical school at the Virginia Military Institute. So you're reading about this and, and that's not the only thing, but um, but you're reading about this and, and you're thinking, what? Well, it actually connects to what we were just talking about because I think that the, the, the particularly pathological strain of racism and, and white supremacy that we suffer from in the United States is actually has some sort of roots in this practice of keeping our mixed race kin as slaves. And, and I also think that the U.S. insistence on egalitarianism as our thing when we're actually really deeply divided by class, it, it made whiteness, meaning who, who could be considered white and what that means and how valuable and virtuous that is, it made it a super precious commodity in a way that you don't see in other parts 
of the Americas. You know, W.B. Du Bois wrote about the wages of whiteness almost a century ago, where he suggests that, that whiteness pays a certain kind of psychological wage. It offers this kind of measure of power and respectability to even the poorest white people, which can kind of make up for or distract one from a system which, which keeps you in poverty. So white supremacy becomes kind of a hysteria here. And, and while it intrinsically relies on defining blackness as inferiority, it's not actually about black people. You know, this this is a, a pathology. Racism is a pathology that's all about white people. It's about their issues. It's, it's about our issues. And I, I think that a lot of media outlets recently reporting on the story of this prevalence of, of, of blackface and and sort of gotchas in, in Virginia recently, it, it's um, media outlets are talking about the history of blackface and, and they've caught on to this long line of scholarship, certainly historians and, and, and cultural historians um, and, and also art. I'm thinking here of, of um, Spike Lee, but also the work of Marlon Riggs, who is a, just an incredible, incredible um, filmmaker. They, they've been telling us that blackface minstrelsy was, you know, it was the very first form of popular culture in the newly United States, you know, in, in the 1830s. It's, it's, so this wasn't a cultural eddy that happened in the South or something, you know, this was, this was part of our national formation. This was part of our national identity. This, this helped us define who, who we are um, and, and what it means to be in America. And white people blacked up and black people who were performing in the arts also uh, blacked up. I mean, Minstrelsy was eclipsed by vaudeville and then and then radio. And you can see this continuation of, of blackface and these pernicious black stereotypes. They, they, they remain embedded in popular culture and, and marketing. And, and you think about, you know, growing up with Aunt Jemima and, and uh, you know, and, you know, it was two years ago. I remember, you know, we, we were like up in arms about some administrators at, at Yale circulating an email that asked students not to wear offensive costumes. And professors and pundits there, some some freaked out, claiming that the memo was threatening the sanctity of free speech, which in itself is a whole myth that everyone has equal access to some kind of free speech. We have a huge chronic problem with historical amnesia, is my point. And another thing I want to add is that when, when I first, you know, the, when the Northam picture surfaced in his medical school yearbook, it reminded me of, um, I was doing some research on a physician from University of Virginia who became sort of lionized um, from the early 20th century, who who had has like a wing named after him at the UVA hospital. He was he was a founding father of, of eugenics. And in researching him at um, in the special collections at UVA, there's all these pamphlets from the 1910s of medical conventions that were including, you know, doctors from the South and doctors from the North, you know, men at the top of their, at their game, all, all men, white men. And, and the, the drawings in these, in these pamphlets were, were just ridiculous. I mean, they were supposed to be showing, you know, their hand-drawn images of apes and human heads that were supposed to be Americans of African descent, but they were completely unrealistic. I mean, they were, they were over the top and the, the racist caricature was so over the top that it was hard for a 21st century person to believe that these were men of, of medicine and men of science. I mean, to, to the modern eye, they look outrageous, but, you know, instead of cringing at all this and trying to put the past behind us, we need to figure out why did these men of science get together and spend so much energy on denigrating black people? I mean, these aren't the property developers profiting from Jim Crow, of which there are many, or, and these these aren't the, the companies who can keep wages low by trying to keep black and white workers from, from joining forces. So why is it so important to medical professionals to create these stereotypes and, and, and traffic and, and, and delight in these, in these super, uh, you know, we find disturbing and sort of unrealistic stereotypes. And so my point here is it's not just about the economics that, you know, racism was, was a rationalization. It's a coping mechanism for white people to justify racial slavery, um, which was economic, but it's 
also a deeply psychological and sociological issue that is really deeply entrenched in our culture in a way that I think is both overt, but really also um, covert. All right. I think we're going to end on that incredibly important point. I I think this is the first of many conversations we're going to have with Christina Proenza Coles. Until next time, you have been listening to Talking Human Rights. I'm your host, Heather Robertson-Gaston. Our guest has been Christina Perwenza coles author of American Founders, How People of African Descent Established Freedom in the New World. Our assistant producer and editor is Sibet Partee. You can find us on the web at www.talkinghumanrights.com. Thanks for being with us.